Hello, everyone, and welcome to another very exciting episode of the AABIP Podcasts. This is your host, Udit Chada from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. And with me today is Professor Najib Rahman from Oxford. And I'm honored to have Najib with me today. Uh, Naj, thank you so much for your time today. That's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Udit. First of all, congratulations on your awesome guideline textbook, I would call it because it's going to serve as a textbook for anybody interested in plural disease for many, many years to come. Thank you. Yeah, it was um, it was a fair amount of work, but we're glad to get it over the line, definitely. On this podcast, we're basically going to be um, discussing probing the BTS guidelines on plural diseases. So we're not going to discuss the guidelines. They are way too comprehensive uh, to discuss in this format, but we're sort of going to probe some maybe challenging or even controversial statements that were made in the podcast and sort of seek uh, Dr. Rehman's opinion uh, on how he approaches these situations. So with that, let me get started, but I have to add the caveat that the opinions expressed here on the podcast are strictly those of Naja and mine, and not necessarily those endorsed by the AABIP. So I've picked a couple of questions from each of the four sections that the guidelines addressed. So let's start with PSP management. So the guidelines say that in patients not deemed to be suitable for conservative or ambulatory management, needle aspiration or tube drainage should be considered for initial treatment. Now, needle aspiration appears to be associated with a shorter length of stay and uh, possibly with a greater need for subsequent plural procedures. So, Naj, is this decision between needle aspiration and an ICD strictly based on shared decision-making or patient preference, or are there any factors that sway you one way or the other? Yeah, that's a great question. Look, I think we always have to put the data that we look at in some context, right? So people who have done randomized trials of needle aspiration are generally experts at needle aspiration. They know exactly what they're doing. They're very familiar with the techniques. And so I think you need to take it with a pinch of salt. Um, In most people's day-to-day practice, when they do a needle aspiration, the catheter blocks or they don't know if they've got a decent outcome and then you end up going to chest drain insertion instead and i mean the example i give you is the Thela randomized trial in that included secondary pneumothorax those were great enthusiasts great experts at needle aspiration and used aspiration multiple times in the same patient up to three times actually their conclusion was we should all use needle aspiration but i'm not sure that really reads or translates to the reality on the ground so to come back to your question, is it about what the patient wants? Of course, it always is. But I think you have to reflect on what your skill and your equipment availability is. I'll just um, give you a little um, kind of a hobby horse of mine, which is if, if you've got a bespoke pleural catheter, which curls and has got internal holes and multiple holes, then aspirations kind of good and straightforward. If you're using a cannula, which was used for something else previously, that gets blocked when the lung comes up and that's not such a good look. So um, you're right. I think it's not just what the patient wants and what you want. It's also reflecting on your own skills and ability, at least to my view. So let's move on to question number two then. This is about chemical pleurodesis for recurrence prevention and pneumothoraces. So the guidelines mention that chemical pleurodesis may cause greater post-treatment mortality when compared to an ICD alone. And this is based on, quote, very low quality evidence, but they do not mention a pleurodesing agent of choice. Is this due to the lack of comparative data? And the second question is, what's your pleurodesing agent of choice? And does a suspected lung cancer or a history of lung cancer change that choice? 
Yeah, all really good questions. Okay, look, so let's again put the data in some context. I think the reason there's a higher mortality in that particular analysis was probably because some of those studies are very historic and they used ungraded talc. And we do know from the malignant pleural effusion literature that the ungraded, unfiltered talc with the small particles is associated with ARDS and some mortality. So the, the Dresler study, the classic 2004-05 study, showed us that very clearly. And subsequent studies with graded, or as we call it, French talc, probably don't or are not associated with that mortality. So right out of the gate, I'm not worried about mortality using graded talc. Is there an, an uh, what is the pleurodesis agent of choice? I think it's talc, actually. I, I think all of the randomized data in both malignant and non-malignant disease suggests that it is the best agent compared to all others in terms of pleurodesis efficacy. So uh, I, I think the, the controversy around pneumothorax management and pleurodesis is much more who you select to do it rather than how it is done. On one level, I would suggest that the method of pleurodesis is less important than the decision to do a pleurodesis. I mean, we shouldn't fool ourselves. Pleurodesis agents are simple plural injury agents. That's how they work. You cause inflammation and then you hope for collagen and fibrosis afterwards. So whether it's a surgeon doing it with a scrubbing brush, whether it's a surgeon doing it by resecting the pleura, or it's you and me doing it with some talc or some bleomycin, the that the intent is the same. It's not more biological than that. I am, however, simply not worried about talc mortality. Um, now, in terms of cancer, presumably you're thinking about future operations and so on and so forth. Is that right? And PET scans getting affected. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, look, I mean, PET scans are certainly affected and, and you get PET avidity for the next 30 years. I think it's a pretty tricky thing to say to a patient, I'm not going to do the right thing now in case you need a PET scan in 30 years time. I don't think that's the right ethical uh, formula personally. And I think we do what's right in the short to medium term, at least. M my understanding from talking to surgeons, those who do a lot of thoracic surgery, is it's perfectly possible to do um, surgical resections, even thoracotomies in patients who've had talc. It just means that the blood loss is slightly higher and it's a slightly more difficult operation. So Back in the day, we used to say, don't do it if transplants on the, on the cards or if um, lung resections on the cards. Uh, I think we have to move slightly past that. I mean, look, if 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 a surgeon's going to do a lung resection in three months, okay, maybe fine. But if you're doing it to say this is a smoker who in 20 years might have a T1A cancer, I'm not sure that that adds up really. Absolutely. Let's move on to another slightly more niche uh, question. So pregnancy is uh, reported as an acceptable indication for surgical advice in the context of a pneumothorax. Now, there are a couple of paragraphs in the guidelines that you know go over pneumothorax in pregnancy as a clinical guide. So I wanted to clarify this. Is the risk of pneumothorax in subsequent pregnancies higher for someone who has already had one? And hence, we should consider elective recurrence prevention? Or should surgical referral be considered early in someone who has had a pneumothorax during this pregnancy? Yeah, so it, I, I mean, the reason that this is in a clinical guideline, not um, a, um, so the reason we didn't give a recommendation is because there's no data out there, right? So, um, and it's very much the latter of what you have said. I don't believe a woman who's experienced a pneumothorax during pregnancy once is now at super high risk of it happening again. And of course, we all know the problem is if you have an active air leak while going through pregnancy and having to push during labor and the foul salva, 
this creates a very difficult physiological problem for everybody. So that's the situation one wants to avoid. My view is if you've got a pneumothorax in pregnancy, especially early, we should talk to surgeons early doors in order to work out, can we sort out the air leak? Can we achieve a pleuridesis before uh, the woman gets on to um, being in active labor. That's roughly where we are. I have dealt with a few people in active labor with a pneumothorax, with a chest tube in situ. Not an easy thing to do, but you can get through it and it is possible. But no, I don't think just because you've had a pneumothorax in one pregnancy, unless you're looking at some hormonal related disease, I don't think you need to do anything active. So, so basically you're treating it much the same as a non-pregnant patient then, right? Well, yeah, except you're being much more aggressive, right? So, I mean, if it's a first episode of PSP in a 25-year-old non-smoker, then you're going to let it resolve whichever way, either drain it or conservative. And then you'll have that discussion, won't you, which is 25% recurrence over the next two years. It's fairly low key. It's about acute management. And then off you go. With a, a pregnant woman, I, I'm not sure I would say, yeah, let's go for conservative management at 28 weeks pregnant. I'm also not sure that I would say, well, let's do an aspiration and hope that it works. I would have a surgical option on the table and work out if we want to be super aggressive. And I think that accepts that there's going to be a degree of over-treatment. So maybe 50% of those women are not going to experience a further pneumothorax in this pregnancy, but you don't want to take the risk. Awesome. So in the section of undiagnosed effusions, there's a good practice point suggesting factoring in the cytology yield of different cancer subtypes. And it says that uh, when planning the most suitable diagnostic strategy, example, uh, you know, use direct biopsies in those when the cytological yield is likely to be low. So that can be considered. So mm-hmm. what is your personal definition of low? And is this uh, limited to mesotheliomas and sarcomas or, you know, do you extend this to shared decision-making with squamous cells? Indeed, it's a brilliant question. It, it, uh, uh, no one is defined low. I mean, you know, as a physician, what do you want to do with your first procedure? You want to make the patient feel better and you want to get all the information you need for their onward treatment. So I think this part of the guideline is attempting to move us forward beyond, I've got positive cytology, I've done my job. It's very clear that positive cytology is insufficient in a significant proportion of patients. And in fact, there's two studies out there now, one from the Glasgow group and one from my group, which show if you take patients with undiagnosed effusion in the round who had malignancy in the end, the first aspiration gave you all the information you needed in 30% of cases. And that's not considering mesothelioma, ovarian. It is considering what we now call actionable histocytology. Mm -hmm. So you and I don't really want... the the pathologist to say, yep, there's adenocarcinoma there. We want to say, do you have sufficient to look for driver mutation so that the patient can go on to treatment? Because that's our job, really. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that this only occurs, we think, in one in three patients. So it's a pretty useless test, actually. So what do I do to answer your question directly? Look, if they've got a likely ovarian cancer, then their cytology positivity is up, the sensitivity is up at 90%. So that sounds good. But their odds ratio for non-actionable histocytology, meaning cytopositive, driver negative, the odds ratio is up at 50 or 70. So actually, you then think, well, actually, I should do a biopsy in that case. Mesothelioma, there's no question, right? So 10, 15% positive yield on cytology. And even then, you can't separate out 
um, sarcomatoid from epithelioid. And that, by the way, has become super important given mm -hmm. um, doublet uh, immunotherapy, which we know is very useful for the sarcomatoid and the biphasics. So if it's likely meso, I'm going to do a biopsy or I'm going to push for a biopsy. Um, the others, I, I think that's controversial. Uh, what I would say is we're currently doing a study, in fact, not to not to kind of advertise, but we're currently doing a study where we're randomizing people to either the conventional current BTS pathway or the what we've called the streamlined pathway, where they go straight for an image-guided biopsy or a thoracoscopy and an indwelling catheter insertion straight away. And the reason we've done that is the thing we've just discussed, which is concerning the diagnostic yield and actionable histocytology fine. But also we reflected that there was probably a degree of a symptom journey for these patients. So you aspirate them, you see them 10 days later, they filled up with fluid again, they need another aspiration while you're waiting for the driver mutations. Surely we can smooth that out with a permanent mm -hmm. catheter. And then look, if it turns out to be heart failure, we'll just pull the tube, no big deal. They've had seven days with a, a catheter. If it turns out to be malignancy, you've got the treatment, the definitive plural treatment sitting there in front of you. So um, I'm not going to tell you what low is. I'm just going to say that I think we need to be a bit more intelligent going forward. All right. So let's move on to uh, plural infection then. And uh, there's a conditional recommendation stating that rapid scoring should be considered for risk stratifying adults with plural infection. Now, I know this is an area of active research, but where do you foresee this going? Is it that people with higher scores should be considered for early aggressive interventions or are we just talking about lowering thresholds to intervene in different ways? Yeah, so it, you've hit the nail on the head as always. Very good. Uh, I think, look, I mean, I, uh, there is a caveat here, which is this is my data. So take it with the bias pinch, pinch of salt. So I'm talking about my own work. But look, RAPID is a very robust tool. It's been proven in 500 patients retrospectively, 550 patients prospectively. So it's got actually much stronger data than something like CURB65 or an Apache score. People don't usually do what we did. So it definitely predicts mortality. And I don't think there's any debate about that now. You're right that the debate, the lens of the debate now needs to move to so what? And actually, most risk scores, and I'd include in that, for example, Lent for malignant effusion, Promise for malignant effusion, they work, but the question is always, so what? How does it alter what you do? And that is an area of controversy, I think. And to my mind, at the minute, we can use it in a certain way, and in the future, we'll use it in a certain way. So let me just divide those up. At the moment, if you've got a rapid high score patient, that means their mortality is in the region of 50% at one year. Now, I think that's useful information to have because when your surgeon comes and sees them when they're failing medical therapy at day two and says the surgical risk is too high, I'm not saying we try and persuade the surgeon, but we do need to say, well, they're going to die of their pleural infection 50% of the time in 12 months time. Does that change your thinking? And it may, and it may not, and I don't know. Now, similarly, if they've got a very low score, do we then run towards theatre? Maybe we say, actually, let's just hold off and let the drugs or whatever do their job. So I think it is useful. I think prognostic information is useful for patients and clinicians anyway, just in terms of thinking. The, the study that needs to be done, and we are working on this, is to triage patient treatment according to rapid score and thereby to show that use overall of the rapid score shifts a clinically important outcome. And no, we haven't shown that yet. So could it shift your time in hospital? Could it get 
uh, weller patients home more quickly? Could you be more aggressive? My prejudice, and it is prejudice, is that if you've got a higher rapid score, you should have TPA DNAs or surgery sooner. But no one's ever proven that that works. We hope to do that in the next few years, I guess. So with regards to TPA DNAs, uh, under good practice points, there's um, a suggestion that when administering TPA and DNAs, it should be uh, 10 and 5. But it says for three days. So why three days and why not cater uh, your dosage or your regimen to the response and then have some cap? Because even in MIS-2, only I think 29% of the patients did not get six doses. Yeah, no, I think that's right. So let's just go through that bit by bit. Uh, there's loads of, since publication of MIS-2, which now is 12 years old, um, there's been a load of case series which have said, reduce the dose, give it once, combine the syringes, and also let's not give all the doses. And so, and I respect all of these studies, they're important because they tell us more and more about how we use the medications, and I'm cool with that. But we should all of us remember that there's only one placebo randomized trial, and that was MIS-2. So why am I saying that? It's not, I promise you, because it's my paper. It's just because it's the only comparative paper. So if you want to come in, let, let's just design a study together that tells me that a lower dose, for example, is as good as a higher dose. What you need to do there is a non-inferiority randomized trial. It's never been done. It will never get done because you're going to need about a thousand patients to do it. So the case series are good and they are supportive and they're helpful and they allow you to drop the dose a bit in certain situations but it isn't as good as the randomized data and exactly the same for reducing the treatment course. So you're right, only 70% got all six doses. And is there much meaning in giving somebody TPA DNAs when the ultrasound at the bedside shows no pleural shadowing and the CRP and the white count has dropped? Probably not. And we use sensible clinical acumen. But for the guideline, we had to go with the randomized data, which was six doses. Now, in my personal practice, definitely don't use six doses if four will do, but it's all about maintaining some form of balance in the data that we're interpreting. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So uh, the last section, malignant pleural effusions. After the, you know, ATS, STS, uh, STR clinical practice guidelines, I think 2018 on malignant pleural effusions, and then the 2020 JAMA RCT, the TAPS study, we sort of thought we had equivalence between slurry and pudraj. Uh, you know, my personal practice was not to do Pudraj unless a concurrent biopsy is needed. Now, the BTS guidelines mentioned four papers, and none of these four studies individually show superiority of one over the other. The guidelines, though, still mention that either can be done. Mm -hmm. uh, I just wanted to sort of clarify this and make sure that this is not sort of an okay to pulmonologists and thoracic surgeons yes. to, to take patients yes. for Pudraj and only Pudraj without doing anything else. Indeed. No, I agree with you. I think the data is very clear that Pudraj has no benefit over slurry pleuridesis. Um, but I, I think the reason that we were softer in the language is not to stop people doing it to the exact point that you just made, which is if you're taking a biopsy anyway. So if you're in there at thoracoscopy, you've seen malignant nodules, you've biopsied and the patient wants a talc, it is not just legitimate, but it's the correct thing to do to give talc right there and then, and to do it with Poudrage. And you could argue it saves a bit of time because you're not then waiting for the x-ray to look good uh, two days later or something. I mean, having said that, the TAP study did not show a difference in time in hospital, which was a surprise to me, I must say, um, because just technically there should be a difference, shouldn't there? I mean, we're giving the talc straight away versus letting all of the fluid leak out after 48 hours. Anyway, that's the nature of clinical trials. So no, I agree with you. 
if you have an established malignant effusion in whom no further samples are required, no further biopsies are required, should you deliberately triage them if they choose pleuridesis to a thoracoscopy? You should not do that. Or I think there is no, there is absolutely no indication to do that. Let's put it that way around. Um, there is risk in doing that because it's more invasive. And we know from Dresler and TAPS that there is a slightly higher adverse event profile. It's certainly more costly. So I think the rational choice is, of course, to do a slurry. Can I just share with you what we now start to do in my practice is mm -hmm. if we've got a patient where we're doing quite an early thoracoscopy in the pathway, so we don't know that they've got an expansile lung, patient wants a pleuridesis, I'll put them on the table, I'll do the thoracoscopy, take the biopsies, I'm sure it's malignant. But if I haven't established they've got expansile lung, I will not give talc on the table. I'll put the large bore tube in and the next morning, if they've got a well-expanded lung, I'll give a talc slurry then. And the TAP study and others have enabled me to do that. So rather than, obviously the, the flip side problem is if you give a load of talc to a trapped space you risk a lot of septation and a lot of uh, a lot of pain later so on those lines in the section on non-expandable lung which uh, is empirically defined as greater than 25 percent of the lung not being opposed on a chest x-ray the evidence statement and the recommendations sound a little bit contradictory to me because the recommendation reads as no recommendation can be made on the use of pleural aspiration dark slurry pleurodesis dark putraj pleurodesis or decortication surgery versus an IPC to control symptoms in a patient with MPE and non-expandable lung. Now, why is fluorodesis even an option here? Is it just because on the emphasis of symptoms or, or what am I missing over here? So I don't think you're missing anything, Uda. I think we just need to be really careful about what we mean by trap lung, right? Now, you've defined it as 25% dehiscence in the lateral chest wall, blah, blah, blah. That's fine. But, but look, um, chest x-ray is the way that people diagnose trap lung, and it's an awful way of looking at 3D volumes. We all know that. So is it possible, feasible, feasible, reasonable, that somebody could have a lateral dehiscence, but anteriorly and posteriorly they had good lung apposition? Yes, it is. And then is it possible, feasible, reasonable, that giving talc would stop them having breathlessness-inducing fluid? Yes, it is. And so actually, that's the reason the statement's written so carefully. Now, having said that, there's no data in this and no one's about to do a, a poudrage study in trap lung. That's not going to happen. Um, but, you know, if there's any young fellows listening to this, trap lung is a great area for research. There's precious little data on symptom management in trap lung. I think there's one or two case series that suggest that IPCs are quite good, but their case series, they're non-comparative. You know, plural aspiration, I think, definitely has a role in certain patients. I also think we should rethink the trap lung definition because arbitrarily we say it's this much lung dehiscence or another. In a way, maybe what we're saying is pleuridesis is likely to fail and therefore what we're predicting is something slightly different to saying here's a trap lung. And there may be better ways of thinking about if pleuridesis is going to fail. For example, doing an ultrasound of the thorax as we did in the simple study, looking for lung apposition, maybe that gives a better 3D view. Maybe pleural elastance, not that I'm a great fan of manometry, but maybe elastance, that may be a way forward. I think there's some really interesting questions there that could be explored. Awesome. Thank you so much, Naj. You've answered all these questions fantastically. Well, I'm, not, I'm not sure I answered any of your questions, but I, I talked about what I like to talk about, which is what I do. So, <laughs> well, You didn't dodge any of the questions. So thank you so much for your time. <laughs> and I'm sure everyone's going to love this. Real pleasure to speak to you as always, Edith. Thanks. Pleasure's all mine.